Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. Finding more accurate ways to measure ALS progression is one of the most important challenges facing scientists today. More sensitive, objective ways of measuring how the disease is affecting people could help make clinical trials faster and more efficient. Achieving this is one of the primary goals of the ALS Research Collaborative, or ARC, a program at ALS TDI that seeks to learn more about ALS by gathering data about the disease and sharing it with researchers all over the world. One way we do this is by collecting movement data by sending people with ALS wearable accelerometers, devices that track movement much like a smartwatch. By wearing these devices on each wrist and ankle, participants can generate data about how their disease is affecting their movement over time. Recently, researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital partnered with ALS TDI scientists to analyze these data and demonstrate these devices can be used as reliable measures of ALS progression. Recently, researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital partnered with ALS TDI scientists to analyze these data and demonstrate that these devices can be worn as a reliable measure of ALS progression. A paper detailing their findings titled At-Home Wearables and Machine Learning Sensitively Capture Disease Progression in Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis was recently published in the journal Nature. To tell us more about this research project and what it means for people with ALS, we're joined by Dr. Anupam Gupta, a neurologist at MGH and the paper's lead author. And yeah, just to get started, um, thank you for joining us today, Anupam. Um, before we dive into the paper, uh, maybe you could just tell uh, me a little bit about yourself and sort of your scientific and research background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, John. Um, so I, I'm, I'm trained both as a neurologist as well as a computer scientist. Um, I trained in neurology um, as an adult neurologist and then um, have a specialty in movement disorders. Um, so I see individuals with Parkinson's disease and cerebellar ataxias as well as Huntington's disease. Um, on the research side, our, our group is interested in using technologies to better characterize and measure behavior. How does uh, neurological disease affect um, how we move and how we think? Um, and can we leverage technologies that exist all around us to better um, capture changes either early in disease, um, more sensitively over time to support clinical trials and, and measures in our, in our clinical trials? And then also understand why two individuals with the same disease are different. Can we understand the differences, the heterogeneity and um, the genetic and environmental factors that lead to that, those differences. Got it. And I think that leads in pretty well to the uh, paper we are talking about, which is about um, using wearable accelerometers to look at um, ALS progression. And can you say a little bit more about just what was the question you were trying to answer with this study? You know, this was a really unique data set um, that ALS TDI developed over many years. Um, it in this um, in this study, individuals with ALS wore a sensor on each limb um, for a week at a time, about a week at a time, every month over the course of multiple years. So, with this type of data, we could ask in individuals with ALS how is movement of each limb changing over time. 
um, that's something that's challenging to do. And and how is movement in our daily behaviors changing over time? Um, so that was the question we asked. We we wanted to know across across this cohort how is movement of the upper the upper limbs, the the two arms and the two legs uh, changing as disease is progressing over time? Um, can we develop a method that can characterize those changes very sensitively so that we can detect smooth changes over time rather than somewhat discrete changes over time that we often get with our um, existing functional rating scales. And um, can you maybe just, if anybody isn't familiar, say a little bit about what kind of the current um, method for tracking ALS progression is and how something like this would be different? Um, so the, the gold standard rating scale in ALS is the ALS functional rating scale or the ALS FRS um, revised. And that com that's composed of four main components that capture the ALS phenotype. And that uh, includes fine motor function, how an individual uses their hands, gross motor function, how people walk and how their balances, um, bulbar, which captures speech and swallowing, and um, and then respiration, an individual's breathing. And so the, the functional rating scale um, traditionally has been performed by a neurologist or an ALS clinician who sees the patient and answers several questions in each of those different categories that reflects the function of the individual at home. Um, there's also a self-report version where individuals can answer those questions on their own. And that is a very useful way of characterizing the changes in ALS because it can be performed at home on your own and more frequently over time. And there've been um, groups um, at, at MGH, James Berry's group is, is one example where they've um, looked at that self-report over time and showed the advantages of getting that more frequent data. Um, so that's the that's been the gold standard um, way of assessing changes in ALS. Um, it has advantages and disadvantages. One of the one of the disadvantages is that there's an element of subjectivity in those in those questions, um, um, and there's also some degree of lack of granularity, right? So you have each of those questions are answered um, from zero to four, um, but if somebody falls between those those answer choices about their function, um, you don't get that level of precision. So the hope with, with using digital technologies to measure some of these um, motor functions is that you can have a more continuous measure that you can detect very small changes over time. And I, I guess let's just get into um, the study itself and how you looked at these data and um, what your findings were. We found a lot of really interesting things in this data set. Um, one of the things we found was that if you look at each of the four limbs, um, the two arms show similar trajectories over time in general for most individuals. And the two legs, how the movement patterns change, those are also very consistent over time. But how the arms and the legs move, um, the movement changes that you see, there's a bit of a divergence in many individuals. Um, in some individuals, the movement changes that are occurring in the legs 
are happening faster than the movement changes in the arms. Um, so the four the the recordings from the four limbs really allowed us to look at um, the similarities between the left and the right side, and we we saw that those similarities between the left and right arm and between the left and right leg, but differences between the arm and the leg. Another thing that we saw was that the movement characteristics that were that we we're um, measuring from arm movement at home during natural behavior very strongly corresponds with how people report on their fine motor function. Um, so the we saw changes in in the natural movements of the arms that very closely reflected how people were having difficulties with writing or eating in their hands. Similarly, the, the movements of the legs corresponded very closely with individuals report about how their walking is and how their balance is. Um, so there's additional information captured when you look at the upper limb versus the lower limb and, and you characterize the, the movements. Mm -hmm. And so what, what does this all sort of mean in the big picture in terms of moving us closer to having um, different ways to track um, ALS progression? So one of the challenges in, um, in ALS and in other um, neurological diseases that progress over time, neurodegenerative diseases in general, is that any drug that's being developed for ALS has to show that the drug is slowing how the disease is changing over time, if it's a disease-modifying drug. In order to do that, you have to be able to measure that change over time. So any tool that allows you to measure smaller changes in shorter intervals um, would allow you to shrink the duration of the trial or the number of participants that are needed for that trial. Um, so what we found in this paper, when you combine the information across the four limbs and you, and you take the limb that is changing the fastest over time, that limb is changing faster than the changes we see on the ALS functional rating scale. And since that's changing faster, if you use that as your measure of um, disease severity, you can shrink the size of your clinical trial from about 120 individuals per arm to um, 70 or so individuals per arm. Um, and so that reduction in the size of the trial um, means reduced cost of trial. It means uh, less burden on individuals with ALS. Um, and it can increase in incentives for companies to develop drugs for ALS if the cost um, of doing those trials and the burden of doing those trials is reduced. Got it. And um, now that we have this study that um, is really serving as kind of a proof of concept for this, what are sort of the next steps between you know, where we're at now with this kind of technology and uh, having them used as a measure in a clinical trial. So in this study, it, it included um, the number of individuals with ALS that we had longitudinal data for um, was about 180 individuals. We had um, 376 individuals that had cross-sectional data, meaning data at at least one time, at one time point, but not 
um, not data that spanned at least nine months of the year. Um, with with a data set of that size, you you feel pretty confident that it can generalize um, to the clinical trial population, and so I I think this technology is now ready to um, to be used as a exploratory or secondary endpoint in interventional studies. One of the things we don't know um, is responsiveness of the measure to intervention. Um, so in a clinical trial, um, you want a measure that um, is likely to respond to to whatever drug therapy is given. It'll be very it'll be very useful to compare the sensor-based measure, how it how it um, how it changes at each limb in response to the therapy compared to how the ALS functional rating scale or other outcome measures change in response to the therapy. Um, so I think we're at that stage now where this can um, begin to be used as exploratory and secondary endpoints in, in interventional trials. And, um, and we'll learn a lot about the properties of this assessment approach through those clinical trials. And so what it, what would it look like for a participant in a uh, ALS clinical trial um, that had this as a uh, outcome measure? Uh, what would they have to do? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, you have you have these sensors that look a little bit like um, a smartwatch that you might wear, and and one of the one of the things that to note about um, this particular measurement approach is as the as the sensors um, evolve over time, the same algorithm can be applied to those sensors. So as sensors become lighter, less expensive, um, you know, easier to wear, the same analytic approach can be applied to those sensors. Um, there are different ways that this can be actually deployed in a clinical trial. So in one setting, a person would be mailed a sensor to wear at home, and it could be a single sensor that they first that rotate through each limb one week per month wearing that sensor on each limb. Um, and again, the advantage of the continuous measurement approach is that we're characterizing the individual's own choice of behaviors, what they're doing on a daily basis. And, and that can more closely, potentially more closely reflect um, how, how the individual is functioning at home. Um, but that does require that you're wearing a sensor for, uh, you know, a, a certain number of days um, at home. Another design could be that once a month, um, an individual is mailed four sensors to wear, one on each limb, um, and that and they wear it for a week at home, and then they put it in a box and they mail it back to the research team to upload data and analyze the data. Um, in another approach, depending on which sensor is used in the trial, the individual can keep the sensors at home, wear it for a week each month, um, and then upload the data to the cloud, charge the device, um, at their home, so they so you avoid the need to mail devices back and forth. Um, and yet another possibility is, since we saw the very strong correspondence between um, the left and right arm and the left and right leg, 
Another paradigm could be used where a sensor is worn on one wrist and one ankle um, to avoid the need to wear all four devices. Um, that is a reasonable approach. What we saw in the in our in our study is that there are some individuals where one out of the four limbs is changing much faster than the other three. Um, ALS is a heterogeneous disease. No two individuals with ALS are the same. And so if you want to uh, be able to capture disease progression as optimally as possible, you, you would record from all four limbs. Got it. Um, so maybe can we, if we could backtrack a little bit, um, can, can you tell me a little more about how this study uh, came together? Like, especially how you sort of became aware that this data set that uh, ALS TDI had collected through the ALS Research Collaborative was out there and why you decided that it was something you wanted to look into? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, ALS TDI, in collaboration with um, some researchers at Google, had recently published um, a paper on the speech data collected in the natural history study and on the task-based uh, the motor task analysis of wearable sensor data um, as part of the study. And one of the uh, collaborators, ALS-TDI collaborators at Google, Michael Brenner, um, and I had been working on a different project. Um, and um, through working on that project, he mentioned this data set where individuals not only wore the sensors during the uh, motor tasks, but also wore the sensors continuously at home. And we had been developing approaches to analyze natural behavior in um, children with ataxia uh, and with ad adults with ataxia. And we thought that the similar approach would work well in ALS. So we were connected from that, um, that study to um, um, Fernando and Alan at ALS TDI. And um, as we learned more about the data set and what they, uh, the richness of the data that they had collected, um, we thought that this was a really good opportunity to apply some of those approaches we developed for cerebellar ataxias to the ALS population. Got it. Okay. Um, well, I think that is most of my questions. Uh, is there anything else you want to add or anything else you think it's important for uh, the ALS community to know about this uh, research project? No, I think we covered it. I mean, I, I just want to say... Thanks so much to um, all the individuals in the ALS who um, participated in this study over many, many years. Um, contributing to a data set like this, um, you know, without without the knowledge of how it might help is often um, very challenging and there are many demands on time. But as we can see from this longitudinal data set, we're, we're finding information that can really help with therapy development. And I think this is just the beginning. There, there are many other elements of both the wearable sensor data set and other um, data types that are being collected that will really help with our, our knowledge of ALS and development of, of new drugs. Great. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Anupam. Thanks a lot, John. There are currently no treatments to stop or reverse ALS, but the ALS Therapy Development Institute is working to change that. To learn more about ALS TDI and our research to end ALS, visit ALS.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>